Let's read here. We'll read all of chapter 20. To begin in verse 1, it says, And David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is a new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king but let me go and hide in a field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him. David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because he has an annual sacrifice, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. And Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, Will I not send word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth." So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for himself, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed, because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began, and wait by the stone of Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, Go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come. Because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe, there is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, and then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem, 
He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I had found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to this king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spirit at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him. He said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this. Only Jonathan and David knew. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, left and Jonathan went back to the town. A great story here that, that concludes uh, a, a fairly large section that we have looked at a fair bit. Uh, and uh, some of the themes that we've covered reoccur in this passage, and we'll unpack them a little bit more with greater depth. Uh, with greater depth. But before we do that, let's have a prayer, and then we'll dig into it. <clears throat> Father, as always, we, we do thank you for just the privilege of being able to gather together as your people, to be able to pray to you, to sing songs, to, to remind us of your greatness and your glory, to, to gather together to take the bread and the wine and be united together uh, as we feast on you and fix our lives on you, God. We do pray, God, you know, this afternoon here as we, as we look at, at, at David and Jonathan, at the substance of their relationship, God, you can help us, God. Help us to learn how, how to forge friendships uh, that ultimately bring you great glory, Father. We do pray you help us in this endeavor, God. We know that, you know, at every corner, really, self-deception is there, God. And we do pray, God, that, that you help us, God, that you open up the eyes of our hearts, help us to see ourselves uh, with a soberness that only you give, God. And that we pray, God, that you can help us to leave here more inspired to love one another just as you have loved us, God. Again, we thank you for this time to be together. We do pray for Ben, uh, that he can be healthy, God. We pray for Jono and his family, God, that they can, uh, you know, obviously turn to you during this challenging time, God. And we pray that you bless us in every way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Well, like I said, look, this, this is a reoccurring thing, right? Over, the, over the, the chapters, starting perhaps in chapter 16, we've seen this progression uh, of Saul in his angst towards David, right? Uh, it started out with, you know, Saul loving David. David had done many positive things, had slayed the giant, brought about military victories. Uh, but as David's success grew, uh, Saul's love for David decreased, and soon that was not even a love or a like, it was hatred. And Saul begins to, uh, you know, at first privately try to get rid of David. 
Then he tries to manipulate situations to get rid of David. Then he sends a small band of, of, of soldiers to try to kill David as he slept. David at that point fled to Ramah where, where Samuel was. Uh, Saul then sends many soldiers almost very publicly here uh, trying to kill David. And, and, and so you've seen this progression and this growing uh, you know, uh, conflict between the two. right? Uh, and then you have Jonathan as the, as the, the son of Saul and the, and the best mate of David caught right smack in the middle of the whole thing. You know? Uh, and it's one of these passages that I, that I really love about the Bible uh, because the Bible, one of the things the Bible does consistently uh, is it portrays mankind as it really is. I mean, how many of us sit back and think, man, my family is a little bit dysfunctional? <laughs> right? It's on Facebook Live, so uh, I just got caught raising my hand, right? But I mean, you guys know Cameron, so you guys understand, right, why I raised my hand. You know, but, but family is challenging. It's incredibly challenging, right? Relationships at times are, are very, very challenging. Uh, community has always been and will always be very complicated and have a lot of challenges along the way. And I love the fact that the Bible portrays that accurately, shows it unwashed, un, un, unaltered, right? Uh, you know, and it, it, it's a helpful thing for us because we can learn a tremendous amount from it. You know, and obviously for this uh, passage, I, I do think there's a lot of carryovers in, in terms of our own relationships with everyone in this room. Eugene Peterson, uh, the guy who translated the message translation of the Bible, which is a very loose uh, but entertaining read of the scriptures. Uh, I wouldn't be basing sound, you know, core doctrines on his translations because it is kind of like modern day lingo. Uh, but he writes a, a great book that if you're looking for a new book to read in the new year called The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it's based on the Songs of Ascent. Uh, the Psalms of Ascent and, 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 and uh, uh, obviously the Psalms. And, and he writes, he says, look, whether we like it or not, the moment we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are at the same time a member of the Christian church. No Christian is an only child. And I love that. I love that last quote. No Christian is an only child. Right? If you've shared your faith with 10 people, uh, over the course of your Christian life, you've inevitably probably met someone uh, who identifies as being uh, a Christian, but they're not for church. Right? They like Jesus, but they don't like Jesus' followers. Right? Uh, and, and of course, that's a concept that is completely unbiblical and you know, completely unfounded. Uh, you know, and, and Eugene Peterson is pushing against that notion here. Right? He's pushing against that idea that, look, whether we like it or not, just as it is with your physical family, when you, when you are baptized, when you are born again, you know, when you stand there and declare Jesus Lord, you become part of God's family. Right? That's a reality. And you know what? God's family, just like every family, is challenging. Right? It's challenging. You know? Uh, the, the fact that it's the family of faith does, doesn't change it. Right? The people we encounter as brothers and sisters, they're not always nice people. They, do not, they don't stop magically being sinners when they're converted. They don't all of a sudden become the most brilliant conversationalists or the most exciting companions or the most glowing inspirations. Eugene Peterson goes on to write, he says, some of them are cranky, some of them dull, and others a drag. But the reality is, if God is my father, then this is my family. And Jonathan specifically is a tremendous example in this regard, 
David leaves at the end of this chapter. Jonathan doesn't. Very challenging example. All right? And so as we look at this text today, you know, we, we are faced with this reality, right? The question is not, am I going to be part of a community of faith? The question is, how am I going to live in this community of faith in a way where I not merely survive, but I thrive? Because whether we like it or not, or whether we like one another or not, because we have the same Father, we are united together. We have to learn through our differences, learn through our different personalities and clashes, how to grow and refine one another in a way that ultimately brings God glory. You know, we look at two very quick points and lots of subpoints. Amen. First, you know, both of these points are, are based on a, a great book. I'll give you another book recommendation by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a uh, German theologian who lived in the 1940s uh, during World War II. Uh, if you've seen the movie Valkyrie, uh, the assassination plot on Adolf, Adolf Hitler, uh, he was involved in that. He had actually been one of the, in, the Americans poached a lot of the in German intelligent people, right, before Hitler fully took power. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer decided to go back into Germany to try to help uh, push back from the inside against, against that regime. He writes a good book on, on Christian relationships or Christian community called Life Together. Uh, and, and he has these two quotes towards the end of the book, right? The first one is this one here that says, let him who is not in community beware of being alone, right? Let him who is not in community be aware of being alone. Meaning if you try to live life solo, if you try to declare yourself as God's only child and go it alone, he says, you, you, better, you better watch out. You better be careful, right? You need close partners in the gospel. The second, second point, second quote is his, uh, a play on the first one, right? He says, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. All right? And, and that idea we'll talk about prayer, right? And his point being, look, if, if, if you are living your life and trying to conduct your life in a way where you cannot be by yourself, meaning you are taking the blessing of being part of God's family, but you are making that an idol, he says, you got to be careful with that. There's some great dangers in that. And so we'll look at those two points, right? Focusing on partnership and prayer uh, with, those, with those quotes. Amen? You guys with me? All right. Here we go. Let him who is not in community be aware of being alone, right? Uh, there's a... Uh, the Instagram post of David and Jonathan having their little chit chat. You, you didn't like that joke, Karen. Karen just shook her head when I said that. Like, come on, it's 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 weak. It is weak. I agree. No, right. But then, you know, you, you think about it, you know, and I don't know. As I, as I was reading this text, you know, I thought about what, what would life look like? How would this story play out? If, if David didn't have Jonathan, or vice versa. If Jonathan didn't have David, if they didn't have this relationship, this relationship, you know, again, it's dominated. We, I mean, we, this is, I think, our third sermon where we're in some sense touching on the relationship of David and Jonathan, right? It's a, it's a, huge, it, it's a huge aspect of the narrative uh, that, that plays an incredible part in really transforming both their lives. But what if they didn't have each other? 
You know, and Proverbs warns against this. Proverbs uh, chapter 18, verse 24, it says, uh, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know, and I think Jonathan and David, obviously, they, they, they embody this, right? They are friends who literally stick closer than family. And we read that and we're kind of like, oh, okay, well, that's not that difficult of a concept, right? But we got to, again, you got to understand Proverbs was written to a people in a, in, a, in a point in history where family was literally everything. Literally everything. Again, in our hyper-individualism, we are so far removed from that concept. But back then, literally, family was life. And, and, and God is saying here, that yes, in a, in a, in a family-oriented culture, family is important, but there is this reality. That there is a friendship that has a quality, a transformative power that can be brought into your life that is even greater than that of your family. Right? A friend. Right? Powerful, powerful thing. And so here we'll look at a little bit more in depth at some of the details, not some of the ones we've covered. We've covered a lot of the... The, the things, as I said, on David and Jonathan, we've talked about the nature of their relationship not being about a contract, but really a covenant. There's an unconditionality about their relationship, right? David leaves here, Jonathan stays, and David is not, like, his feelings are not destroyed because Jonathan didn't come with him, right? Because there's a covenant approach to them, not contract. So there's a respect, right, that, that goes along with it. Right? We, we've talked endlessly, not endlessly, but a lot about Jonathan's selflessness, which he again you know, em, you know, embodies at every step of the way in the, in the story. Right? We're not going to touch on those, but we'll look at three other ones here right? as we think about the nature of their relationships. You know, one of the things I picked up as I read this is that, is that when you think about their relationship, uh, it's never just the two of them. There's always a third party that they bring in, and that's God. I mean, you get big sections here of them talking with one another, right? And they're constantly reminding one another that even the things they're discussing are discussed in the presence of God. The oaths and agreements and the plans they put in place, they remind each other that those are being done in, in the presence of God, right? Over and over, right? Verse 8, they make a covenant with one another before the Lord. Verse 12, they swear by the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 23, they, they re, you know, remind one another to, that the Lord is the witness between them forever. Verse 42 says that we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me. God is without a doubt the glue in their relationship. They both face him. They both serve him. They both live their lives fully conscious and aware that God is present, and they bring that into their relationship, and that's a sign, you know, or, or, or uh, a, a influencer that makes their relationship so strong. And I often think this when I'm doing marriage counseling, you know, and, and Michelle and I talk about this as well, that, that if you remove God from a marriage, a close relationship, it is very difficult to find how you would stand the test of time. Because God very much is glue that draws us together. He is, he is a, a mediator in all of our relationships that forces us to have humility before him. Right? And for David and Jonathan, they have that. And the fact that God is the center, right, also shows us that they're not, 
you know, they're not guided purely by, by their feelings all the time. But they're constantly remembering God, right? The second thing we, hear, we, we see here is that the relationship is not based merely on feelings, how they feel about one another, or even how they feel about one another doing things. It is based on facts, on truth. You know, I find it incredibly interesting, the interchange that they have here at the start of this chapter, right? And if you have close friends, you, you know, you know, what many, commenta- many commentators have a hard time with what happens here, right? Remember the story, uh, David had fled, like I said earlier, to Samuel, and Saul had sent men there to hunt him. And then it's almost crazy what David does in that he leaves that safe place in Ramah, and he goes back to where Saul lives. And some people think, well, you know, some commentators say, well, maybe, someone, maybe a scribe like put the page in the wrong place. I don't think so. I think, I think this is a reflection on the depth of their relationship. David's not just going to get out of town. He's holding out hope that maybe Jonathan can bring about change. And he runs to his close, you know, companion and advisor to seek out him for advice. But as they come, what I find very interesting is, is that despite the closeness of their relationship, despite the great depth and trust they have with one another, David comes and, and tells Jonathan some pretty blunt stuff. Basically, man, your dad's trying to kill me, Right? And, and Jonathan doesn't blindly accept that as truth. Some of us do that, though, right? If your friend tells you something, you believe it. Okay, well, that's true then because, you know, they said it. Jonathan doesn't do that. And, and what's remarkable, he doesn't even do the opposite. He doesn't blindly defend his father. But here are two of Jonathan's primary relationships, his closest friend and his dad, both having some conflicting accounts. And Jonathan is is literally not just blindly accepting what anyone says. Why? Because it's not friendship for the sake of friendship alone. It's not just about feelings. It's not just about David feeling validated. It's not just about blindly protecting his dad. The basis of the relationship is God, and because the basis of the relationship is God, truth is grounded as the foundation of their relationship. That that's what they seek to understand. You know, and then they concoct this whole plan, of course, to, to uncover that and reveal that truth uh, before they move forward, right? You know, but, but it's just, again, you think, about, you think about your relationships. Do you have a common standard of the Word of God in, the, in your relationships? Because if you don't, the relationship inevitably will not last. Because the world is going one direction, God is going another direction. You know, as Paul tells the Corinth church, what fellowship can light have with darkness? These are polar opposite things, right? But for David and Jonathan, they're held together. Interesting enough, they also both approach uh, the situation with Saul in a way that is completely counterintuitive. Right? Another great book that covers uh, all, these, the, all these stories here in 1 Samuel is a, is a Tale of Three Kings uh, by somebody. Forgot who. Eugene, Eugene Edwards or Gene Edwards. Right? Is that right, John? Gene. Right? John loves it. Very good book. Right? For sure. You know, but he talks about this and he has several chapters that cover the concept of David doesn't throw spears back. Saul is repeatedly chucking spears at David. But David doesn't throw them back. 
No one does that. No one in the world approaches relationships that way. We receive and we tend to give it right back. David doesn't operate that way. Neither does Jonathan. Jonathan gets a spear chucked at him in this chapter. He doesn't yank it out of the wall and throw it back. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again in his book Life Together, he talks about the difference between human love and spiritual love. And he says, human love has little regard for truth. It makes the truth relative since nothing, not even the truth, must come between it and the beloved. So you think about what he's saying there, right? Human love has little regard for truth because human love doesn't ultimately care about truth. Human love cares purely about themselves and who they love and the one that they love because then they tend to love because of what they get from that person, right? And he says, so truth becomes a relative thing. It can be disregarded because it's not the core thing. The core thing is the person they love. But again, David and Jonathan don't operate that way. You know, even when David comes and he asks questions of Jonathan, right? What have I done? How have I wronged your dad? Why is he doing this? I don't think those are purely rhetorical questions. I think David is sincerely seeking, hey, have I done something? Am I blind to something? Am I missing something? Do I deserve this? Because Jonathan then takes those very same questions, and when he interacts with his father, he says the same questions again. Why? Because the basis of their relationships is truth. Not just their feelings about how they feel about each other. Not just the moral relativity that they want to create so they can have each other. It is on fact. Even as they talk about how they interact with each other, verse 14, David appeals to him to show me the kindness just as the Lord has shown kindness. Treat me as we've learned God treats us. Again, letting God dictate it. Again, Bonhoeffer is helpful on this. He says, contrary to all my opinions and convictions, Jesus Christ will tell me what love towards the brothers really is. Contrary to how we think, right? We actually need to be informed on, hey, here is the right way to love. Because at times the most loving thing to do is to rebuke your neighbor. Confront them with, them with their sin. To tell them truths and realities that hurt them. You know, and just as Paul tells the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you know what? Sorry I made you sorry, but I'm actually not sorry because that sorrow led you to repent. The origin of hashtag sorry not sorry was Paul in the first century to, to Sin City, Corinth, right? And he, he says, look, yeah, I told you things and it hurt you and it, maybe you cried about it and maybe you got really mad about it, but at the end of the day, you changed and so I don't regret it for one moment. You got to get a friend like that. That's the kind of friend that David and Jonathan are for one another. We got to learn how to love as God tells us to love. The third thing we see here about them is that there's a loyalty that binds them together that goes deeper than blood. This is what Jesus expects of his followers as well, right? In the, in the Gospels, both in Matthew and in Luke, Jesus tells his followers, right, if you're going to come after me, you've got to hate your father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, even your own life, or you cannot be my disciples, right? In the more PR, uh, politically correct uh, version in Matthew, he says, if you love your father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, even yourself, more to me, you're not worthy to be my disciples. That your loyalty to Jesus and to his family must supersede that of your physical family. 
Jonathan again, this is, this is how he walks. And he cops it. I mean, it's harsh what, what Saul has to say to him. You, you, you son of a perverse woman. Right? There's a common phrase that's still in used today, and I'm not going to say it, right? That probably stems from this. But Jonathan doesn't fold. He doesn't cower. Because his loyalty is to the spiritual family that he is forging and that friendship he has with David. But they are bound together by these deeper things. They're bound together by God. They're bound together by the truth. They're bound together on a spiritual level, not merely an earthly level. And that's why you see this integrity in their relationship. I mean, they make plans. And they follow them. They make oaths to one another. Jonathan makes an oath to David that literally almost costs him his life. But in that moment of pain or potential pain or moment of danger, Jonathan doesn't compromise on the promises he's made with David. There is a loyalty that is forged by having God as the center, having God as part of your relationships, and having truth as the core of it. When you think about Psalm 15, you don't have to turn there, but you know, the, the question is posed by the psalmist, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? You know, and God rattles off a few things, right? Who may live on your holy mountain? You get, you get some cool things. Interesting enough, one of those is who, the person who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. You hear that for sure again, is Jonathan. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. And if you don't have friends like this, you got to work and forge it. If you're just coming here and rocking up every Sunday, but you're not building close friendships, you won't last. You won't stand the test of time. And if we're not becoming the kind of friendships that we see modeled in the scriptures, there is no way we will be the kind of friends that, man, we need to stand the test of time. Amen? Secondly here, let's look at the second quote, right? Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. You know, and for this one, let's hop over to Psalm 59. One of the things I love about First and Second Samuel is, is you can take a lot of detours into the Psalms, and you can read David's prayers at various times in his life. And Psalm 59 is one that perhaps covers this entire, this, this entire section that we're finishing up, uh, most likely covering chapters 18, 19, and then here the one we're reading in chapter 20. Let's read here, Psalm 59. Starting here, verse 1, David, he, he, he prays or sings or does a little bit of both. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine. Lord, I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You, Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. They return at evening snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are sharp as swords. And they think, who can hear us? But you laugh at them, Lord. 
You scoff at all those nations. You are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God, on whom I can rely. God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me, but do not kill them, Lord, or shield, or my people will forget. In your might, uproot them and bring them down. For the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride for the curses and lies they utter. Consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God, that God rules over Jacob. They return at evening snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied. But I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress, my refuge in time of troubles. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God, on whom I can rely. Yeah, I don't know when David wrote that. I mean, even in our text, he's, he's literally he's out in the field for like two days, right? Sitting there wondering what, what, what's his future? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to Jonathan? What's going to happen to my wife? What's going to happen to my family? I mean, sure, my brothers pick on me, but man, I don't know. I don't want anything bad to happen. But David spends a lot of time alone. And he's going to leave here, you know, in 1 in, in, in Samuel, uh, and he's going to go on a dark journey. Israel's anointed king is going to go, and he's going to live among the Philistines. He's even going to fight alongside them at various times. He's going to go into a dark period where he is alone a fair bit. But the reality is David's never alone. The reality is that David is always crying out to God. I think in many ways the success of David's life that we see publicly is a reality because of how David lives privately. Even as David comes on the scene with Goliath, right? He says that. I mean, they say, man, you're a boy. How are you going to go against Goliath? He said, you know what? I've been off on my own. And when a lion or a bear took a sheep, I struck it and I took it back. The victories he had in private give him the strength to have the public victories. In many ways, that's the point here, right? Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. If you're not having time where it's just you and God, if you're turning your relationships into parasitic relationships, where you begin to look for things from people that only God can give, you better be careful. Again, we are constantly distracted and connected people. It is so easy to just turn to people. It is so easy just to pick up the phone and text, and we do, we appeal to that sometimes. Because as a community, we're charged to carry one another's burdens. And that is right, and we should do that. But as individuals, we are charged to turn to God. And what you find with the Psalms is David continually doing that, continually turning to God. Dark times come, troubling times come, he turns to God. You know, and you see in this Psalm many details of how he goes about it. There's a picture of him doing that very thing, right? You know, the first aspect of, of David and how he turns to prayer is simply that idea that he doesn't. 
He does turn to God. And you think, what is your default response when trouble comes or bad news arrives or something doesn't work out how you want it to work out or where someone says something that isn't what you wanted them to say? Where do you turn? Who is your first port of call? David has phenomenal relationships with guys like Jonathan and later on we'll see men like Nathan. Yet he does turn to God. He does take his problems there. You know, and interesting enough, as he takes his problems there, he does not filter them. I mean, you read his prayer. I mean, twice he calls his enemies dogs roaming the streets. I mean, he calls God to wake up, which is pretty bold to say, right? Get out of bed, God. Arise, do something about my situation. But hold on, before you do something here, I don't want you just to destroy them. I want you to make an example of them. I want you to take their sins and take note of their sins. And here, let me detail out their sins to you. In case you were curious, I'm innocent in this matter. And he tells God, hey, turn, you know, allow the, the fruit of their sins. Allow them to reap, you know, what they've sown. And then destroy them. Because I do want them destroyed, right? And you think about that. Is that how your prayers are? Is that how you talk to God? Or do you put on your religiousness? You put on your false front as if he can't see through it? I mean, as if he doesn't know that you wish he would just literally smash that person like an ant. And this is not the worst of the Psalms. When the preteens are in here, we won't get into other psalms where he talks about even doing things with people's babies who he doesn't like. It's incredibly graphic. David is unfiltered. He doesn't put on a religious face with God. He is real and honest about his heart. And I think that's a big reason why he is not self-deceived. Deception's a dangerous thing, guys. Read the book, People of the Lie. Scary. You gotta believe it that when you're out just talking to you and God and you're and you're lying there to the one who you know, I mean if you're praying to him, you believe he's God. So you believe on some level that he does know everything, and yet even with him you're being deceptive. And so you really think when you're with your brothers and sisters who have limited knowledge. Who literally, they don't know what's in your heart. They can try to decipher it based on what comes out of your mouth and what your actions portray. But you better believe that it's a lot easier to lie to me than it is to lie to God. But if we approach prayer in a way where we're just flat deceptive, fake, false, like whitewashed tombs, you better believe you're playing a dangerous game. Man, read the Psalms. David is brutally honest about how he feels. Now, as a side point, it's very important who he's talking to. God. He's not talking to Jonathan like that. 
doesn't tell Jonathan, hey man, your, your dad's a dog. And I hope God doesn't just take him out. I hope God makes an example of him and then takes him out. He doesn't talk like that. He knows there's a place for unfiltered honesty. And that's to God. And when we don't do it to God, but we do it to other people, we're just like the people he's praying about. Who weaponize words. And we wonder why people are so wounded. But David doesn't just go to God. He goes to God with no filter. You know, and as he goes to God, and as he goes to God with no filter, and yes, some of it is shocking, but what's interesting is he goes along the way. He's continually declaring who God is. Verse 5, you, Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel. Verses 7 and 8, right? Talking about the people they think who can hear us, but you laugh at them. Verse 10, God will go before me. Verse 13, then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. Verse 16, I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You know, read Psalm 59 again tonight. And as you read it and you hear him repeating, not just as he vents his problems and his issues, but as he repeats things about God. As he reminds himself who it is he's talking to. You can feel David's tone shift. You can see the change occurring within him. You can see his perspective begin to widen. You can see his problems begin to get smaller and God to get bigger. And that's because he's not forgetting God. And he begins to have tremendous confidence. I mean, you notice the entire psalm of how it, how it moves, right? It begins there, verses 1 and 2, with insecure cries. Please, deliver me, right? You're my, you know, deliver me, be my fortress, deliver me, save me. He's asking God to be things that he doesn't feel as if God is. He is in a state of insecurity and uncertainty. But how does the psalm close? David has tremendous security. Verses 16 to 17, you are my fortress, my refuge. You are my strength, my fortress. And this is what prayer does. It doesn't change our circumstances, it changes us. David braves Psalm 59, he's still going to be on the run for decades. But he's changing who he is. Because he's going to God and he's being honest about what's in his heart. And as he confronts himself, as he talks to God about what's really in his heart, he also remembers who God is. And as he remembers more and more who God is, he begins to have confidence and security. But you know what? God is in control. You may not understand why God is doing what he's doing, but he is in control. You know, and as we think about David and Jonathan, we think about community. Partnerships, great friendships, they're amazing. But you got to be close to God. You can't turn the blessings of the kingdom into what you worship rather than the king. A lot of people in this room that can be tremendous friends for you. Tremendous partners. But you can't look to them to give you what only God can give you. So you got to keep this balance that we're talking about. 
Right? You've got to have great partners, but you also got to have a great prayer life. If you want to have a great horizontal relationship sphere, man, you've got to keep that vertical really strong. Right? That's a charge for us and that's a challenge for us. If we're going to live in community and not just merely survive, but thrive and grow and become all that God wants us to be. Amen? Let's have a prayer and then we'll stand together and sing one final song. Father, we, uh, you know, as always, kind of in a twisted way, we thank you for Saul. You know, God, we, we do, you know, obviously it's, we're, we're so easily tempted to look at those stories and think, man, I'm David, I'm Jonathan, I'm not Saul. But God, we know we all have a lot more Saul inside of us than we realize. A lot more of him than we would like to admit. But God, we pray you help us, God. Help us to look at the, the positive examples here of David and Jonathan, God, and, and to emulate them. To follow their example, to, to, to keep you as the, as the core, as the glue of all of our relationships, Father. God, help us to never become unhinged from reality, to never lose sight of truth, but to even allow you to define how we love one another. But Father, as we, as we forge those great relationships, God, help us to not lose sight of you. Help us to not make those blessings things we worship, God. Help us to not allow the privileges of being part of our, you know, your kingdom to cloud us from, from the greatness of being able to serve you and to know you, God. And we pray, God, you help us, God, to be people who are, who are committed first and foremost to you, God. And we pray you help us, God. Help us this week to have times where we, we pray like David prays. We can remove the falseness and the hypocrisy. We can peel back the, the, the fake fronts that we so easily create, God, and to be real before you, Father. To learn, God, as, as David you know, obviously showed us, God, to, to, to take our insecurities to you, in order to find security. To not look to one another to, to satisfy a need that only you can, God. Help us in all this, God. Pour out much grace and mercy and forgiveness on us as we pursue these things. Fill us with your spirit, God. May it really be that bond that binds us together uh, deeper than any other connection. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Awesome, let's all stand together and sing Let It Rise.